Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Department of Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the ANU's Australian Centre on China in the World and the Department of Pacific Affairs. In this episode, we're looking at a landmark agreement struck in September between the Vatican and China. The deal's about the appointment of Catholic bishops, but the political symbolism is far greater. The Holy See and Beijing effectively cut off relations in 1950. In the intervening years, around 12 million Chinese Catholics have been forced to choose between worshiping at a state-sanctioned church. Under the auspices of the Patriotic Association, which does not answer to the Vatican, or worshiping at unregistered churches. That's the sound of worshippers praying at underground churches with clergy faithful to the Vatican. They do not recognize the authority of the Patriotic Church. We're joined by Dr. Jeremy Clark, a former Catholic priest who is researching the history of relations between China and the Vatican. Some Catholics are saying this is a massive success; others are saying it's a huge sellout. What's your view? Well,、uh, Louisa and Graham, great to be here.、Uh, thanks for having me on. Look, this is a very complex situation that、uh, I think we're going to struggle to、uh, answer within the time we have. But、uh, I think it's a very important step forward. I think that、uh, too many people outside China who don't understand the realities on the ground use very inappropriate, ill-informed, and incorrect language to describe the realities. So the first thing, as Confucius said, of course, is to rectify the names to get things right. If we can get things right, then perhaps the reality itself will also begin to right or correct or move forward in a reconciled way. So back in 2010, I did、uh, quite a lot of reporting for NPR on the Catholic Church, and in the course of that reporting, I went to visit、uh, one of the people known as an underground bishop,、mm-hmm. Melchior Shuhongjun.、Mm-hmm. Um, he's now, I think, 91 years old. And when I went to visit him, then he was living under what I described as a kind of house arrest. He、yes. was in a compound. By our highway, believers could visit him, but other Catholic clergy could not. He needed police permission to leave the compound, even to give the last rites. And、um, when I asked him why he hadn't joined the Patriotic Association, this is what he said. The Patriotic Association is an organization of the country, like the Communist Party. You are free to join or not. I didn't. What I've been doing doesn't harm the country in any way. I just give mass, baptism, and the last rites. That's all. How will this agreement change life for people like、uh, Bishop Melchior Shu? I, I believe there's around 30 who are in a similar situation, who've been recognised by the Vatican but not been recognised by Beijing. Yes, I mean the numbers again, as with anything in China, is always very interesting because there's effectively been three groups. There's those who've been、uh, somehow ordained, consecrated as bishops by the community, and obviously with communication with the Vatican, either before or after the event. 
there was a period of time uh, between around about the late noughties and, and into after 2010 where there was a middle way where the Vatican and the government were already communicating about this. So there was a group of those who were agreed upon. And then there's that other group, which includes this seven mentioned in the provisional agreement, who were clearly nominated by the government, ordained, uh, but without Vatican sanction. The provisional agreement has effectively carried on from Benedict the uh, the 16th statement earlier, which also said there will no longer be any of these underground consecrations. So those 30, uh, or whatever that number may be, because I'd be very interested if Bishop Melchior, all hats off to him, is still alive given his great age. Uh, but of those 30, they themselves now actually, funnily enough, have received protection by this provisional agreement. The, for the first time, as a result of the agreement, two Chinese Catholic bishops have been able to participate in a synod in Rome. That is massive news. After Benedict's letter in, uh, I think it was 2007, I want to say, he invited four bishops from China, two from the unofficial communities and two from the official communities. None of them were allowed to go. So an immediate trade-off is that actually the provisional agreement has already delivered to the Chinese Catholic communities and to the international church. I mean, that synod, it's, it's, it's running for a month yes. and they're discussing um, youth issues. Yes. Um, what do you say to those within the church who, who see this as kind of a massive sellout, given that there are still priests who are being detained, there are still priests who are being harassed? Um, is, is it a premature move? Well, no, insofar as since the 50s when the relations uh, were radically soured when the papal representative was expelled from Nanjing, it has not been in relationship with the largest country in the world. So in that sense, this is a long-running, decades-long failed relationship. So they've been trying over many years to rectify this. Where the rubber hits the road, if you like, is how does it affect people in their lives? And like you're saying, there are people in the communities who have suffered for a long period of time. They have been under house arrest. They've been uh, removed from families, from community, not able to work. Many in the 50s were were imprisoned and tortured and persecuted. The Bishop of Shanghai, who died a few years ago, Bishop Jin, spent well over 20 years in prison, some of it in solitary confinement. You know, so these people have paid the price of their faith well and truly. Uh, and many people say we can't sell out their stories. Tertullian, early in the church, said the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, you know, and so the fact is that for these individuals, it may seem incredibly harsh for them, but the international community and Pope Francis, following on from Pope Benedict and Pope John Paul II before him, wishes to engage in relationship. It gets back to an early church heresy, which was known as the uh, Donatus Schism, Is it only for the pure, only for those who are rigidly resolute to the exact letter of the law, or is the church actually filled with people who are flawed, who are failed, who are sometimes have to make compromises? At the moment, the Vatican is the only country in Europe that recognises Taiwan, from from what you're saying. Well, uh, be careful of that. Do they actually recognise Taiwan? They don't actually have it. They don't have an ambassador there. Um, They have, it's the lowest level, it's a charged affair. So they don't have official relations at the highest level with them. For years, everyone knows that uh, the, the, appoint, the, the China representative has been based in Hong Kong with his bags packed, ready to go. So Taiwan actually is not the issue from the Vatican's point of view. So it's not about Taiwan. But they don't have a relationship of any sort with China at the moment. No, they, but because China itself is not, uh, the sticking point has been around recognising the Vatican's right to be engaged in the appointment of bishops. 
it's so arcane. That's why we won't do it in an hour. But the appointment of bishops is a really funny thing because there is actually already a precedent. For instance, the state of Liechtenstein still has the right to appoint bishops. So they communicate to the Vatican who they want. Vietnam presently as well has a relationship with the Vatican whereby they name individuals who are their candidates. So it's actually already at play, but because of the complexity around the Chinese Catholic Church, because of the US backing of Taiwan in this, particularly from the 50s onwards, whereby Cold War language like the underground and these sort of things come into play, one has to unpick these threads to actually try to get to what is the main weft of the conversation. So, I mean, at present, there are around 70 Catholic bishops in China, and of those 70 bishops, seven of them are not recognised by the Vatican. Is that likely to change now with the change in relations? My understanding is that those seven have actually been, for want of a better word, normalised. The ipso facto excommunication. So for instance, I don't know that they actually received a letter saying that they were excommunicated. If you want to get very legal, the act itself was deemed to have excommunicated them. But you actually still have to deliver that letter. You actually still have to say you are excommunicated. You know, so so I don't know if they themselves were in fact formally excommunicated. But the reality is one of them anyway is dead. So posthumously, he's been rehabilitated, if you like. And the other six, yeah, have now been normalised their relationships with the Vatican. And that was a an agreement that was part of, that was a, a clause that was key to the agreement and which has attracted the ire of people like Cardinal Zen and others. So you say that this agreement is for, you know, that people are flawed and it's, you know, to take account of that. But I think that it might be really hard for Catholic communities in China to see what is actually ostensibly a political agreement in that way. And I know that the Vatican spokesman has said the accord was not political but pastoral. But if you talk to those Catholics who are loyal to the Vatican, it's very clear that they see any move as political, not pastoral. And I, in my reporting, I remember I spoke to an underground nun who said, you know, she wouldn't support the patriotic church under any circumstances. So she's basically saying, you know, it's a matter of principle and you should never betray your own principles. The church is a matter for God and not a, not a matter for the Communist Party. People like this nun will feel that they've been completely betrayed by the Vatican, won't they? Uh, again, it, it's very, very complex here because when we're talking, she mentioned the word Tiao Hui there. She's talking about the association. Now, the association is the government body that administers uh, religion, uh, particularly in this case within the Catholic sphere. She's saying she's not going to deal with that bureaucracy. That's a really important distinction. Will she feel betrayed? Some people absolutely will. And the comment to there is, back to again to this donor to schism, it's whether or not we as individuals, as people, as a community can accept that there are instances when it's not going to be perfect in this life. And I think, unfortunately, one product of the um, difficult circumstances in the Chinese Catholic communities is that there is a lot of judgment on both sides. And those involved in the unofficial communities, many of them, unfortunately, 
do have what's known as, uh, you know, in spiritual terms, spirituality terms, the sin of pride. Many of them are now actually into effectively a cult or a ghetto where they are following um, practices which are outdated in the international communities often, where they um, do not update their theology, do not update their, um, their learning and their understanding. And in many ways, that's no fault of their own because they don't have access now the provisional agreement by granting license across the board gives these people opportunity to study and also particularly for women. At the moment in the official communities, there are many nuns in China and they're the front line doing visiting the sick, visiting the elderly, looking after the poor. And many of them have actually quite limited education. Again, not their own fault, but it's because of where they come from. So the reality is that many of those holding on to this truth of it's God who runs the church or it's this person who, you know, we must follow this bishop, not that bishop, that actually, strictly speaking, moves into a cult. Because technically, if they're about structure and legitimacy, the Pope is the legitimate leader. And if the Pope is saying X and they're saying, no, we're only going to follow Y, well, they're not actually being legitimate or in accord with their own understanding of what structure is. So they're expected now to go to churches that are under the Patriotic Association. Is that how it will work? Yes, it, it will. Uh, but equally, they can still go to a church that is not registered, and it's a question of whether or not the government will then crack down upon that community. But what uh, what it means, though, is that the priest has greater scope now of being able to officially function and operate. So the instance of Bishop Melchior being under house arrest, and there are many like him. I visited a church community in Herbe once around Christmas, and the bishop had been whisked away. One reason I'm sympathetic to those who register and, and those communities is that us on the outside, who've never had to face that pressure and persecution, it is oh so very easy for us to be so holy and clean an equally misunderstanding of what is going on. I mean, talk about compromise in other churches, you know. But uh, a story I heard the other day was uh, I was in China just a couple of weeks ago going to many Catholic churches, and one man was talking about how his bishop had participated in a non-Vatican-sanctioned ordination. And he said there was so much pressure on him. He initially said no, he was going to be under house arrest. And they said, but but your brother has a business, doesn't he, in such and such a province? How's that going? How do you think that will go if you do not maybe just come along to this service for us? You know, these sort of subtle and incredibly not so subtle moments and points of pressure, it's, uh, it's amazing how people do not break. And to what end in the end? I suppose... When the Vatican and China uh, had their um, split in the 50s, which came about because the China expelled the uh, Vatican representative, the Patriotics Association was formed in the late 1950s. It was formed and two Chinese Franciscan priests accepted to be um, consecrated as bishops without Vatican approval at that time. They said in the end, we think our communities will die if we do not accept this. Jin Lucien in Shanghai, when he came out in the 80s uh, after prison and everything like that, he said, I have seen the church disappear three times. You know, the church has disappeared three times in Chinese history. I do not want to turn my back and thereby allow it to disappear again. So it's this question of, uh, you know, how bad is too bad? Or if we get some good out of it, will we accept whatever we, you know, whatever, you know, whatever we have to do? 
And when you were in China visiting yes. these communities, what were they saying? Were they saying that they were happy about this? Or it, did you get a sense that it would drive some communities further underground? I was there just around the time of the announcement of the provisional agreement. And I spoke to, you know, the gatekeeper and some people in the pews and that sort of stuff. And I said, what do you think about it? And they were saying, it is very complex. We do not understand. And then, but a couple of weeks later, I went to similar places and I said to them, okay, what do you think about it? And, uh, one young parish priest, he said, look, it's been very difficult, the, um, the, you know, the fracture in the communities, but now there is a real opportunity to journey forward together. And what, what it does, it surfaces or enables communities now, paradoxically, to use the tools and apparatus of the state to protect themselves. There have been a series of government documents since 1982, document 19, document 6 in 1991, and documents around about the uh, regulation of venues, regulations of places of worship. Many of the inland dioceses and parishes pre-1949 had properties on the coast in places like Shanghai and places like Tianjin. And these properties, the rent from them would go to assist the work in the rural communities. Now, some of these churches and things are getting um, quite beautified and and, uh, and made up. There's a whole lot of property which actually has to be given back to the church communities. So there's rent to be made from there, which can actually be claimed under these regulations. So there's actually a chance for the communities to use the law against those who've been oppressing them. Um, one very important figure that we've already mentioned is Cardinal Joseph Zen. The former Bishop of Hong Kong is an outspoken critic of China, and in an interview with Al Jazeera, he said that it seemed that Pope Francis has been poorly informed about the situation on the ground in China. Not completely well informed. I would not say completely misinformed, because the Pope is so optimistic, uh, and now these people, uh, they're happy to encourage his optimism and uh, without telling him all the, the bad things, all the things uh, he may not like to, to hear, huh? like uh, uh, all the negative things uh, which happen in China, which gives no foundation to any optimism. In his words, he worries that although the Vatican has the final say, quote, what good is it having the last word when China will have all the words before it? Do you see this as a victory for China's patriotic Catholics? Look, I think, uh, you know, the sexual abuse crisis in Australia and throughout the world would lead most sane people to have little regard for the Vatican and its bureaucratic intrigues and its clearly corrupt uh, administrative um, functioning in so many different ways. But on this one, I do feel some sympathy for the Vatican because it, on the one hand, is um, damned if it does and damned if it does not. And equally, when it does get what people like the Emeritus Cardinal Zen, Emeritus Bishop of Hong Kong, would say is that they're ill-informed, Ill Cardinal Zen has not lived in China for a long, long time. Shanghainese, member of the Shanghai Catholic Church, very proud church, hugely influenced by French Jesuits in the from the 19th century onwards, post the First Opium War. So, like, he comes from a church which prides itself on its intellectualism, on its uh, fidelity, on its ability to lead. Well, and he's been outside for a long time. He's been uh, an amazing voice for the church, amazing voice for human rights. But uh, in this instance, he's not as informed, in fact, as some of the people who have been forming the Vatican.
Now, one thing I'm curious about is even this year we've seen a, a massive reorganisation of this religious affairs bureaucracy. Yes. So, in effect, it has disappeared or been subsumed by the United Front yeah, Work Department. Has that caused a change on the ground for Chinese Catholics? Certainly what I think is worthy of note is that previously you had the Religious Affairs Bureau, which got renamed the State Administration for Religious Affairs, and now effectively it's subsumed under a party line, a party group, the United Front Work Department, as opposed to being a government bureaucratic uh, entity. And that's of concern. And I think that does fit with Xi Jinping's move to increase emphasis on uh, Communist Party uh, teachings and learnings and, you know, frankly, ideology. Uh, The United Front Work Department, as people will know, was very much founded at a time by the party to bring about union amongst friends, effectively friends who were basically seen as enemies. It's a way of bringing people within the fold of the party. So its language and its aim taps back into that day. So it's a party entity now controlling religion. The party has not moved away from language contained in Article 36 of the Constitution, which is everyone has freedom of religious belief and the freedom not to believe. And all communists are atheists and atheists have the right to propagate atheism. So the United Front Work Department's stated goal is not to promote religion, it's to promote the removal of religion. You're saying that the law will protect Catholics, but this rapprochement is coming at a time when we're seeing moves against religious believers across the board. We're seeing these big Christian churches in Wenzhou being attacked, the churches are being burnt. We're seeing up to a million Uyghurs being placed in re-education camps because of their political beliefs. It's a very bad time for religious believers in China right now. It's a very bad time for human rights lawyers. It's a very bad time for, you know, a whole range of people. Uh, Clearly, this government wishes to uh, exercise great control and is doing that through their classic definitions of anything which is seen to be against the state. So the examples of Christian churches you've mentioned before, they're unregistered. They're communities that are not obeying the stated law. Uh, The government knows they're there but has allowed it to occur. Now in this period of closure or tightening or, you know, keeping the grip on, these sort of places which are not registered, which are thereby actually illegal, they're the ones who are getting cracked down upon. But, I mean, look at Xinjiang. Well, Xinjiang Xinjiang's a different case. I mean, there are these mosques that people went to were registered. They were following the rules. Yeah, but as we know, Xinjiang's actually more about the polit- geopolitical nature of it being the border region and, and uh, an independence movement. It's obviously there's religion tied in because of the identity of the people who are suffering these terrible things. But it is, it's, a different, it's of a different nature to the crackdown of religion, I think, in the eastern seaboard. But I think there are religious believers in China who firmly believe that Xi Jinping's end goal is an atheist state and one of the reasons to strike a deal with Catholics now is to move as an endpoint towards an atheist state. I understand why people would say that and certainly ideologically speaking, the rhetoric would promote that. But as we know, anyone who goes there, you know, there's uh, they're, they're not atheists. I mean, Mao, uh, Mao himself was elevated to a, the figure of a god, you know. Ian Johnson, who's uh, such an expert on this in his book, The Souls of China, actually uh, delves quite deeply into uh, Xi Jinping's associations with Buddhist 
temples and Buddha's teachings when he was in Zhejiang. And, um, was no, uh, sorry, Jinjing. And he, uh, he helped actually rebuild a famous temple. He looked after an old master, used to visit him very, very frequently. Uh, and so there's an argument actually to that hard line, they all want atheism. Uh, there's a great promotion of Taoism. There's a great promotion of some Buddhism as well. So I think Xi Jinping is savvy enough to realize that you can't totally repress religion. If you do, it grows. The seed of the martyrs is the blood of the church. You know, their their attempts to control through repression hasn't worked. So now they're actually seeking to co-opt and provide some space. And the legal entities and legal structures provide some space. Now, at times, it's a very tight, gilded cage. But at other times, actually, those birds fly quite free. Uh, so uh, I, don't, I don't agree that the end goal in terms of real politic really is an atheist state. I believe it's actually a state they control. I mean, one of the interesting arguments from the early noughties through the mid-noughties mm. was that religious organisations, um, this argument was particularly put by Kelly Sy, mm. were kind of stepping in and performing roles that the state itself recognised it Absolutely. wasn't very good at performing. Yeah. Now, do you think under Xi Jinping that these sorts of activities, this kind of idea that they can complement the state, is that still going to be tolerated or is that sort of activity going to be frowned upon as well? So what we're seeing is uh, since that time period from uh, the, you know, the noughties onwards where people recognised that religious bodies that were behaving were actually seen as being good citizens. They weren't breaking the law. They were opening up charitable works. They were providing assistance, uh, flood relief. They were providing assistance to uh, education of um, migrant worker children, as an example. You know, so they were providing a lot of good stuff that they were seen as um, possible people to emulate around building a harmonious and, and good society. So, so within that space, that space grew quite quickly. Now what we're seeing is the tightening of those sort of spaces. So I don't think they'll seek to eradicate it totally. I think the lesson from 49 onwards has been that they will not get rid of religion. They tried it through persecution. They tried it through since 1958 in Shanghai, massive arrests of all the major leaders. Spent 20 years in prison. You had the, um, as they say, the 10 terrible years of the Cultural Revolution and people were still there. So they don't want people gathered by the side of the road praying or walking up mountaintops by themselves without regulation. They want to actually somehow have it in the open, but where they can capture them if they want. So that's the challenge that the churches have to face. Do they want to be open where they can be attacked, but they can function, or do they want to somehow go underground where, in fact, what function do they have apart from um, you know, withering away into some sort of cult? And I mean, this is something I've seen in my own fieldwork in Anhui. Yeah. Um, I saw a performance on Christmas Eve that yes. started first thing in the morning and literally went all day and yes. I believe went on into the evening until Christmas Day itself. Yes. And this was a nonstop, full-on performance. Yes. In Fujian, I've, I've been in home churches where they literally meet and talk about the Bible every single day. Right. So it's a fervency of belief I haven't even seen in the Pacific. Yes. What happens to these kind of rural believers under Xi Jinping? Like, is, does that continue? continue to exist or is this going to be targeted in the crackdown? I think what will be targeted as with all these things is is any leader, anyone who comes out. So we're talking individual faith journey, someone who says, I am going to keep praying the Bible regardless. You know, the stories of the Protestant, um, like Watchman Nee, um, a famous Protestant leader in China, died in prison. Um, you know, you get people who are saying, regardless, I'm sticking to what I understand this message is and how it makes meaning in my own life. And then 
Others might do it more secretly. So um, Shershan, that we've mentioned a few times, is the Marian pilgrimage site outside of Shanghai, where there's a seminary and there's every May, um, thousands of believers will climb up that mountain. It's very, very moving. And uh, they continued to do that even when they were not allowed to do that. And they would climb the fence or they would duck out because within the Catholic communities, and I studied this in my doctorate looking at Marian identities in the Chinese Catholic Church, the rosary can be said regardless of who's there. You can say it under your breath. You can say it in prison. You count it off on your fingers. You count it off on your your bruised rib bones. You know, whatever you want to do, you can actually do it when you're walking with a crowd. I sound like a beer ad here, but when you're actually sort of, you know, when whatever you're doing, you can actually pray the rosary. You don't need a priest. So in that sense, that can never be controlled. You know, unfortunately, these totalitarian states, they still don't get that you'll never actually control everyone all the time. You yourself had said in our conversation that you believe Xi Jinping's aim is to co-opt religious believers. It seems like it's almost the worst time for the Catholic Church to come to an accord with China at this point in time. You know, the constitution is a dirty word. You know, Mm -hmm. constitutionalism is forbidden under document nine. And, you know, it's clearly flouting its own laws. Uh, um, Isn't there a danger of going down this path at this point in time? Certainly. You know, I'm not privy to the conversations that led to the agreement being made now rather than at another time. Uh, I would say that you're talking about two entities that think in generations and, uh, you know, think in decades rather than days. So it is intriguing. This is one can we can say with certainty that for the Vatican, from the Vatican side, getting an agreement with China is a long-held goal. So I think they're saying that no time's going to be a good time in China to make this agreement. And certainly with uh, the US having its own, uh, well, why don't we go there, kind of bout of naval gazing at the moment and it's sort of very limited uh, engagement with Asia in a meaningful way, I think obviously China is puffing its chest up and and uh, and certainly very very happy to take a very active stand across the place. So it doesn't seem a good time from the outside. Moving forward, term limits have been removed. Yes. And so we face the prospect of Xi Jinping in power for a very long time. Can you foresee a possibility in the future under a China undersea for a papal visit by Pope Francis to China? Yes, I can. And I can because, uh, you know, we've talked politics and we've also sought to have a kind of pastoral dimension to our conversation here. But at the very, a papal visit plays such, um, it combines those roles to the nth degree. You know, it's like supersized pastoral connection and it's supersized political statement. I was recently at a location which is of great significance to Chinese Catholic history. and. Um, Individuals who are, um, know what they're talking about, they're not members of the Catholic Church, let slip that they want to get this place ready uh, in case the Vatican visits, you know, and then sort of paused and, 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 and said, oh, well, well what, I, what I mean is, and sort of came back. And it, it was a slip. I think whatever of the terms of the provisional agreement that we haven't seen, I think Zen would say they're giving up everything without getting anything in return. Well, I think I'd wonder whether or not a Vatican visit is not maybe something that's a papal visit is not something that's on the cards. And the Vatican would be willing to give up Taiwan for that? Well, as I said before, they've already given up Taiwan. 
they um the uh papal nuncio the the representative is sitting in Hong Kong with his bag packed. No, but technically, yeah. the Vatican still doesn't recognise China as a country. That would have to happen before a papal visit. So you think that's on the cards? I think it would be no visit without that would be the Chinese point of view. And I think the Vatican would have to say, well, what are we getting in return? But it'd be the crux of the issue, absolutely. And I'm sure Francis would want to go. Benedict wanted to go. They've made all the indications. The actual people who've been slow to the party here since the 50s have actually been the party. So, I mean, it does seem that there there has been in recent years a campaign against Christmas. We've seen the party telling its party members that Christmas is spiritual opium. Um, Even these moves um, to ban Christmas celebrations on university campuses, uh, Christmas goods disappearing from the shelves in Guangzhou, including a pair of sunglasses with a symbol of the cross and the words, Jesus loves you. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are clearly signs that the Communist Party is against Western religion and all that it stands for. Uh, yes. I mean, it, again, we, it goes back to the fact that under Xi Jinping, they're really trying to push the party and the party's key role in society. And so one way of bolstering that is bolstering the ideological underpinnings. And uh, as Apter and Sage say in their wonderful book, it's all about contending belief systems. So on the one hand, you've got the belief system of the party and whatever C now says is how we determine those readings. And then you've got uh, religious practices in this instance, the practice of Christmas. Uh, In my own experience, Christmas services, certainly Beijing, certainly Shanghai, are packed out in the Catholic communities. I think it's fascinating that they're using this as um, the test of orthodoxy, if you like, but you can't tell me that a United Front work department person um, probably won't go along to say, I'm just making sure they're behaving. I'm just making sure they're doing what they should be doing. I mean, one thing that's always intrigued me is if you look back a bit to the history, mm. the Catholic Church has always been beaten over the head a little bit as representing a sort of traditional values in the same way that Confucianism used to represent it. Mm. And a lot of the intellectuals, when you look back, were Protestants. They were kind mm-hmm. of styling themselves as reformers and using yes. Protestantism to say yes. Protestantism equals modernity. Are these intellectuals in universities that are being cracked down over Christmas, um, are they worrying the state because they're sort of substituting their religious belief for modernity, which is what they're meant to believe in? Yeah, excellent point. I mean, uh, I would just push back a little bit on uh, in the early 20th century, um, there was an orphanage in Shanghai, uh, a place called Tushan Wan or Tulsave, where Xu Bei Hong um, learnt to did oil painting, and he described that as the cradle of modern art in China, and uh, was also seen as the vanguard of modern Shanghai, you know, of modernity in Shanghai. And now it was run by Catholic priests and brothers. So, I think uh, your your points are really insightful, one Graham, because if you remember, there was that whole fever around at one time around they would look at the Christian intellectuals. You know, these intellectuals who were saying, I'm not a believer, but I like some of the messages and the messages around social justice and equality and uh, outspokenness. So I think it's about, again, contending narratives. And I think the party wants to say, no, the only people who have looked after China are us and the only future is us. Someone who's backing this other horse, that that's not allowed. I'd, I'd put it like that. I think it's at its baldest, and it gets to conversations we've had around power in this conversation, it's about who's holding the narrative, who's telling the story. 
and Christianity is a story which, you know, if the flame is lit, yeah, there's there's a sense that the fire can be wild. Jeremy, thanks for joining us. Oh, great to be here, um, Graham and Louisa. I heard Louisa give her presentation on uh, Republic of Amnesia in Washington some years ago. So I've been a fan for many, many years. So it's a delight now. It's a total fanboy shout out. But uh, great to be here, Louisa and uh, Graham. Great to catch up with you again. <laughs> thanks, Jeremy. You've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Follow us on Twitter or like us on Facebook, where you can visit our page and find out more about Jeremy's work. Don't forget to like us on iTunes. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China in the World and the Department of Pacific Affairs. Our editing is by Andy Hazel, background research by Julia Bergen. Our music is courtesy of Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danter. Bye for now.